This is fighting for holiness, part two. You wouldn't want to miss part one as the prologue for all of this. We need to have a wartime mindset, the mentality of being a fighter, someone who is fighting the good fight of faith in the Christian life. And we need to fight enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. What we're talking about this morning specifically is fighting our flesh, our flesh, what remains in us after we are extraordinarily saved, dramatically saved, washed from our sins, and we we sense the power of God in our lives, and then immediately following We're soon to find that there is the principle of remaining sin, this flesh that's not just for the men, it's men and women. And we'll have to fight it until ultimately God takes it away from us when we go to heaven. But because we are ensconced within our humanity and it's still affected by the fall, we continue to by necessity wage war against our flesh. And one of the reasons I think that we fail in the fight is we make allowances for something to be unaddressed. We say, I'm addressing 90% or 95%, but I'm going to just harbor this 5%. And that little 5% of our flesh eats our lunch because we just nurse it and keep it there instead of killing it all the way dead. Um, From one of my favorite books, The Vanishing Conscience, uh, there's an illustration, and I love it. It talks about how Saul was the first king of Israel. He wasn't the right man for the job. He was weak, stubborn, selfish, and arrogant. He was a failing king, and one of his greatest failures is recorded in 1 Samuel 15. He was ordered to carry out God's judgment on the Amalekites, basically to kill the king once they had destroyed the army. The Amalekites had been a long-standing enemy of Israel, and they were prophesied to have a, a bad ending and a doom because they had hurt and harmed Israel when they first were delivered from Egypt. Deuteronomy 25, 17 and 19 is where Moses wrote, remember that Amalek, what Amalek did to you the king then on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you and did not fear and he did not fear God. Verse 19, therefore, when the Lord your God was, has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Well, Saul did forget because years later, Saul and Israel, Israel's armies, they were to be the instruments to destroy the Amalekites. First Samuel 15, three, now go and strike Amalek and div- And devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. The point was total destruction to fulfill this prophetic doom of blotting the memory of Amalek out from under heaven. Saul didn't follow these orders all the way, though. He kept some of the treasure. He kept um, he kept the king alive. Agag as a prisoner and really as a humiliated trophy. 
It was for Saul's pride that he kept Agag alive and it posed a threat to Israel and the Amalekites uh, really kept some strength and were able to harass Israel. First Samuel 15, 22 and 23 is when Samuel the prophet comes to town. It was God's man and Samuel was not happy. It says, has the Lord, this is first Samuel 15, 22 and 23, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected, and he's talking to Saul, rejected you from being king. Samuel ordered that Agag be, Agag be brought forth. And basically, 1 Samuel fifteen thirty three says what he did to him. Samuel said to Agag, as your sword has made woman, women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. This is a very political, politically correct statement to make, right? And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Now, this is a bloody display, but it's a picture of the ferocity that we need to have with our own sin. When we leave residual sins in our lives and we rationalize them for whatever reason, we are harming ourselves. You can't be content to mostly destroy your sin patterns, but you need to eradicate them. In the vanishing conscience, the author says, there are still some Amalekites running around loose in everybody's lives. We all have agags in us. They'll plunder our hearts. They'll sap our spiritual strength. And we can't be merciful with agags in our life. We have to hack them to pieces or they will create insurrection in our hearts. So here's the question. How do we kill sin addiction? And specifically, not just to the men, but men and women, the media is plaguing us with pornography. The sexual sin word in the Bible is porneia. And the Bible says that those who are enslaved to porneia are falling prey to a horrible path. And so today's culture where media is thrusting itself upon us, pornography that is now spreading like wildfire and consumptive, it has to be dealt with. It kills people's spiritual vitality. It interrupts marriages and ultimately will kill a marriage if left undealt with. This is not new. When Adam and Eve fell, the first sin of humanity their eyes were opened, verse chapter 3, Genesis 3, 7, says their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths and they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Why did they do that? Why did they cover themselves? Do you know why? Not because of there was a new law that they needed to do that, like we have laws of appropriateness here. It was the idea that their hearts had suddenly been injected with sin. And so now they were not looking upon each other with purity, but they were looking upon each other with lustfulness. And they were ashamed of what was going on in their hearts and within their minds. It's the first acts of pornography. And they were trying to fix their problem superficially or externally to no avail. It's fighting the same 
heart pathology. And it's no, this, this fight is all through scripture. It's just, I mean, I'm going to give you just a sampling of this sin through scripture. It's everywhere. Job, you know, it was the first inspired book probably written by Moses, many think, in the patriarchal period. Um, it records Job's commitment not to lust. Job 31.1, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Joseph having to flee Potiphar's wife who was tempting him day after day. Samson, that early judge, he was falling to the temptation of Delilah as Samson teases Delilah lying about how he would lose his strength, but ultimately was wooed by her sensuality into telling his secret. He gives up his strength for immorality, Judges 16. Israel's constant battle with pagan idolatry is always connected to the sin of sexual immorality of sensuality, the Ashereth idols that they would, that they would worship were goddesses of fertility, fertility. Eli hearing in his old age that his sons Hophni and Phinehas were laying with women at the, at the entrance of the tent meeting must've been horrifying, but this is the storyline of this sin. King David, ignoring his responsibility to go off to war, glances down at Bathsheba bathing And he falls. And what did he do? He kept falling and falling and falling. Amnon, David's son, one of them, violated Absalom's sister Tamar, where lust turned to to hatred, where he had seduced his um, sort of half-sister into immorality, feigning to be sick. That's 2 Samuel 13. Solomon, he was known for ushering in the pagan practice of kings with concubines, making that normal. Ironically, he wrote Proverbs 7, warning that a man should not look through the lattice work at a woman longing for her and following her in the path of adultery, being reduced to a loaf of bread. You know what that means? That's where a life is boiled down to the price of a loaf of bread at that point. Someone in an unrepentant state. Jesus said, according to the law, if you lust in your heart for another woman, you're committing adultery. Acts 19, people would have riots against the early church because they would be taking away idol worship, which was really temple worship, which was filled with sexual sin. Romans 1 defines the culture of digression as turning into unnatural desires, unnatural immoralities. And we know that's true in our culture today. 1 Corinthians 6 says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin is outside the body, but immoral persons sin against their own body. Paul says, this is the will of God that you would not commit sexual Immorality. First John 2, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but the world. And then Revelation, the final book in our canon, speaks of the Antichrist, the false system, and it's all depicted in the Babylon, Babylon figure who is the mother of prostitutes, Babylon the Great, and the earth's abominations to follow. Revelation 17, 5. This is a small sampling. This was just something I wrote down off the top of my head, thinking about Bible stories. It's all this sin and its destruction and the victims of this sin that are left in its wake is replete throughout scripture. 
So many of the Bible narratives come back to this particular sin. It's epidemic in nature and it assaults and it destroys Christians everywhere. So it should not catch us off guard or take us by surprise. And let me just tell you this, the sin of sexual immorality or committing adultery in your heart or pornography, um, viewing that stuff that goes hand in hand with lying. And so never underestimate the power of Satan, who's the father of lies. When you're asking someone if they're struggling in sin in this way, men or women, you should ask when they tell you what they say, you know, yeah, yes or no, or to this degree or that, just ask them then, did you just lie to me? Did you tell me everything? Let me ask you again. And you're saying that in love, not to harass a person, but to help them to be unlatched, unchained, unshackled from this sin. It's addictive. You say, well, addictive is a worldly word. It's a cultural word. I understand that. And I understand the victim culture that's out there where where people believe they caught this, like they caught a disease. But addiction can also be a synonym for the biblical word slavery or being enslaved. Romans 6, 17, being a slave to sin. This slavery, though, this addiction is not without hope. 1 Corinthians 6, if you'll look over there with me, 9 through 10, says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, how is there hope in this? Well, the point is that this sin of Pornography or viewing that or sexual immorality or adultery is all wrapped in with the other sin, sins listed here of pride and drunkenness and greed and being a swindler and a thief. All of these sins can be conquered by the power of the gospel. Yes, there are implications and consequences that may vary. But ultimately, stealing and drunkenness and being a swindler are all part of this same sin category that people can become enslaved to and can be delivered from. Verse 11 says, and such were some of you. Now, Paul's speaking to the church and what he's saying is that you could be in this category within the church. And you can be delivered from this category of addiction as a Christian within the church. And then you can be put into a new category where you look at the history of your life and say, you know what? There was a time in my life where I used to be enslaved to that sin so much so that that characterized and dominated my life, even though I was a Christian. Now, if you don't repent of those sins then you might be believing you're a Christian and really not. But if you are someone who's committed to battling those sins and working on those sins and trying to kill those sins, then you're a fighting Christian who can come out of that and look back at it and say, I used to be that, but I am that no longer. Romans 6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Romans 6, 18, having been set free from sin, we've become slaves of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, anyone's, 
Anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away and everything has become new. This is salvation, but what about, what about specifically people who are enslaved, who are still saved? How do you kill sin? How do you get deliverance from drowning in this? Well, the question I posed last week and I'm going to repose this week is, are you willing to dive in at a level as a believer and really go after your sin to the point of saying, I'm going to resolve to kill it. Now, ultimately we will not be fully and finally delivered until heaven, but you can be delivered today within your lifetime as a Christian from the enslavement of the sin, the enslavement. Because the Holy Spirit calls you to be a slave of Christ. And the idea is learning how to not hold back with your sin, to facing it head on, to being willing to win the war within. You know, I never played football, but I'm a football fan and I've watched a lot of football and um, it's safer that way. But what I've come to believe is that the person who um, runs full bore within the game and is the hitter rather than the hittee is the person who typically comes out of a collision better off than the person who was hit. In other words, you, you need to put full force of impact against your sin. If you try to half fix it, you'll make yourself worse off than you were before. That's why a good coach will pull someone who's hurt, who's not playing at full speed because they're going to get really hurt if they don't go full on. You say, we're talking about pornography though. You don't understand. This is really, really aggressive. Well, you've got to match that aggressive nature of sin with an aggressive push with resolve to fight it. The Spanish explorer Cortez, when he came to the new land to conquer it, he was going to face enemies. Everybody got off the ship. And when the last person stepped on dry land, he said, burn the ships. Why did he do that? Because he was committed to be moving forward and never looking back and saying there was only one option and that is to fight and kill and destroy the enemies or die. You got to be willing to swim down deep into places of pressure. If you've ever swam down deep in the ocean, it gets colder and colder and colder and colder. If you go 10 feet down, you're really, really getting cold and you, you can feel the, the sand in your fingers, but the pressure is really alarming. And that's a lot of the time what it's like to kill a sin like this. One of my heroes, John Owen, he wrote the book, The Mortification of Sin. He's a, it was a nonconformist Oxford theologian and Puritan. And I tried to take his book and make it practical for killing sin. It's mortifying sin. You should think of the word death when you think of mortify. It's the idea of the, the killing of something that is alive. It's alive and you want it dead and all the way dead. A postmortem is where they look at a corpse. Well, the, the, the death, the thing that you want dead is still alive in you and it's got to die. So... Number one, here's a few preliminary questions. Who can mortify sin? First of all, only believers can mortify sin. 
Only a Christian can kill sin. Only a Christian can really look through the crosshairs and see with discernment what's going on in there. An unbeliever can behavior modify, can change up your lifestyle. You can, you know, go different places. You can say, by force of willpower, I'm going to stop doing this or that. You can try to religiously change things and use symbols and experiences and read books and do religious things and wear religious clothes and eat religious food, whatever that is. But those things aren't going to change you. Only a Christian has the power of the Holy Spirit to kill sin. Romans eight twelve is a great passage for this. It says, so then brothers, so Paul speaking to Christians, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So it's the idea that as a believer, you could become indebted to your flesh, like you're owned by your flesh. It's like when you owe someone a lot of money and you feel beholden to them and you owe them. It's you owe your flesh and you've compromised in your conscience at such a level that you go, oh, well, I guess I'm doomed and destined to live a powerless, lifeless, heartless Christian life. Well, the warning of this is that you're dying. You're headed toward death if you do this. I'll explain what that means in a minute. Colossians 3, 5 says to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? All right, what's still earthly in us? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And then you have Galatians 5, 16, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So these are commands to believers, commands that are expected to be obeyed by all of us. All of us. This is not just to the men. It's to the men and the women. Number two, here's another preliminary question. What are you supposed to kill? It seems obvious, right? The sins that we've been talking about. But we need to remember that this is not behavior modification. This is dealing with the core problem, the true enemy, which is called the flesh. Um, Colossians Three said the deeds of the body or what is, I'm sorry, what is earthly in you? Romans seven, the law of sin. It's like the law of gravity. It's something that's in us that's decaying. The second law of thermodynamics says that we are in a constant state of atrophy. Listen to this quote from a journal in 2016. It says the second law of thermodynamics states that in an isolated system, one that is not taking energy. I mean, compare that to being lifeless as a Christian. You're just in a state of stagnation, right? You're not taking in energy. It says entropy always increases over time. The second law is acknowledged in everyday life in saying such as, here's the layman's terms, things fall apart. You can't unscramble an egg. What can go wrong will go wrong. So biblically speaking, Romans 6, 6, the old self is crucified, but Romans 7, 23, a law of sin dwells in our members. What does that look like? John MacArthur gave an illustration I heard a long time ago. I've read it and reread it and it always stuck with me. It's that 
in um, Roman times, the times of the Roman Empire, New Testament times, they used to um, punish criminals with a cap who were to be punished with a capital offense. They were to be um, executed. And the way that they would execute a criminal would be to um, tie a dead carcass to the back of someone where they had to walk around with a dead carcass upon their back. And the reason for that was that eventually the death that was attached to that living person would eat through that person's flesh and destroy them utterly. It's a gross picture of the flesh, but it's a picture nevertheless that I think is painted within this biblical context. It's the sarks, it's the works of the flesh. It's why we as Christians can sometimes act like a non-Christian. Say, how does that work? Well, Martin Luther put it this way. He said, there are two fields that, that are presented that everyone is in one or the other. You have a field that is under Adam and a field that is under Christ. You put a fence, corral fence around each field. And you know that the Bible says we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. We're under the son or we're under Adam. Now, if you are in that field under the sun, you can no longer in any way, shape or form be put into the field of Adam, you know, the field of sin, the field of lostness or death. However, Satan is in charge of Adam's field and what he'll do, and Luther just pictured it this way is he'll go right up to that fence. The fields are next to each other and he'll wave you over and say, Hey, come over here. And he'll cajole and he'll say, you remember how you used to be when you were in this field, you could still act that way in that field. And he'll get you to do that and argue you into acting according to the flesh. So here's another preliminary question. What is the goal of killing your sin. We know what to kill. We know that believers can kill the sin. So what is the goal of killing the sin? And this stood out to me in everything that I studied this week. I really appreciated kind of refreshing this thought. It's important to understand that killing sin in your life as a believer with the power of the Holy Spirit, so you can do it and you know what you're killing. When you do that, you are gaining something as a Christian the assurance of your salvation. Killing sin is synonymous with the assurance of your salvation. And the reverse is the same. It, or the reverse gives you this opposite reaction where when you do not kill sin as a believer, you will lose the assurance of your salvation. And when you kill sin as a believer, you are gaining the assurance of your salvation. Are you following me with that? That is a very important principle to understand. You are gaining the assurance. You're gaining confidence that you are truly a believer when you actively kill your sin. When you sit there and passively allow the sin flesh as a body of death to eat you alive, then you are losing the assurance of your salvation. I didn't say you lost your salvation, but you are losing confidence that you were ever saved in the first place. How does this play out in scripture? Well, Romans 8, 13 says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Life here is the the assurance or the confidence that you're going to heaven. You're going to live. 
because you're a fighter. But if you're someone who doesn't care, who's indifferent, then you're dying inside and your confidence will drain from you. And then ultimately, perhaps you might find out you're not a Christian at all. And then that's death that's eternal. So to live life is not some next level Christianity. It's just the assurance of your salvation. That's the goal. Romans 8 continues that. Romans 8, 13. Now look at verse 14. Where do I get this? It says, for all who are led by the spirit are the sons of God. So that's right after verse 13. Verse 13 says, if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you're going to live. What does that look like? It looks like understanding that you're being led by the spirit of God and you're a son of God. For you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You're not meant for this. Oh man, I did it again. I'm enslaved. I can't get out of my sin. And you live in that fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. When we fight against our sin, we're willing to hack the agag in our lives. When we're willing to really go hard and hit hard at our sin, then suddenly we have a Abba Father relationship again that opens up and the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God and heirs. We know we're going to heaven. We know we're inheritors. This way persevering is life. John 15 talks about branches that bear fruit and branches that are pruned, branches that don't bear fruit, branches that are thrown away and thrown in the fire. John fifteen six. What does this look like? What does it look like to fight? Well, Paul said he boxed and disciplined his body so they wouldn't be disqualified. First Corinthians nine twenty four says all runners race to win, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do not receive a perishable wreath, but an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body to keep it under control. Lest I, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What I want to introduce you to is the idea that Paul's aim and goal again was heaven and the assurance of his salvation. So when you in your mind say, okay, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go to that website. I'm not going to choose to click on this. I'm not going to look at that advertisement. I'm not going to talk to that person. I'm not going to have that person in my heart. I'm not going to do this or that sinfully. The reason that you should not do things or do do things has to do with eternity, has to do with heaven. That's a very important piece of the puzzle. The assurance of your salvation is on the line as you address this issue in your life. Paul said he ran the race as a marathon runner to compete for a prize, not a perishable wreath, not one that's going to perish at the end, but I'm competing for a prize that's imperishable. That's how serious this is. It's the idea of finishing the race. It's not just talking about him staying qualified as as an apostle. It's the desire to go the distance. Again, we're not going to be perfect, but we do need to run the race with endurance. Philippians 3.12, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. 
But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I reach ahead for the prize, right? That's Christian living. And you might say at this point, we're going to get even more practical. Say, where, how is that practical? Well, there are a lot of books on trying to clean people up morally, things to do and not do. But ultimately, the spiritual life has more to do with trusting Christ and knowing him personally and being that committed to the Lord and then letting the Lord work out his sanctification process in your life. But we're going to get more practical than that. But it is important to understand that all of sanctification has to do with wanting to keep the assurance of your salvation and looking heavenward. And when you are indifferent to your sin and nursing sins and not willing to face sins in your life, that that's eating away your assurance. All right, number four, what does it mean to mortify sin? I said this already, mortifying is killing. Think of the word death. The mortality rate um, of a place is the rate of death within a population. So it's killing it dead. What does that look like? John Owen said it this way. It's taking the strength, vigor, and power from something so that so that what was alive cannot act or, or exert itself. In other words, when you are enslaved to a sin, it becomes involuntary, right? It's, you just, it becomes muscle memory. It's what you just get used to doing. People are used to pornography now in our culture. They're used to it. It's normal for people to be participating in it. And the key is to weaken the sin habit by draining the life from it. John Owen said in... Um, the mortification of sin as a man nailed to the cross, he struggles. He first struggles. It's like nailing sin to the cross. It first struggles and strives and cries out with great strength and might. But as the blood and spirit waste, his strivings are faint and seldom. He cries low and hoarse, scarce to be heard. When a man first sets on a lust to deal with it, it struggles with great violence to break loose. It cries with earnestness and impatience to be satisfied and relieved. But with by mortification, the blood and spirits of it are let out. It moves seldom and faintly, cries sparingly, and is scarce heard in the heart. And it, it may have sometimes a dying pang and makes an appearance of great vigor and strength. But it is quickly over, especially if it is to be kept from considerable success. So how do you weaken the sin? You starve it. You starve it. You starve it to death. You have to be willing to do that. How do you kill? All right, let's get very practical. What does it look like to kill the sin? This is my sermon. Okay, that was all prologue. Here we go. Number one. I'm not kidding. All right, number one, be willing to think about your sin. What I mean by that is you have to face it. If you're going to clean up anything in your life, whether it's your finances, whether it's, you know, your business plan, whether it's your, your household, um, you have to face brute facts. That's a business principle in scripture. It's the ability to face your sin, to look in the mirror of your conscience and say, I am doing that. And it is that bad. And guess what? The Holy Spirit knows it's far worse than you will even allow yourself to see it for. But at least you have the Holy Spirit showing you at a level how bad it really is. Whatever sin issue you're dealing with. You have to consciously reject the belief that. You know, I'm okay, you're okay. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, 9 says. We have to say what the Bible says it is and what it's doing to us and others around us. 
can't excuse it by looking at other people and going, everybody else is doing it. I'm measuring myself according to people. I'm measuring myself even according to my Christian friends. I'm going to measure myself according to them and excuse my sin. You can't do that. By the way, your sin isn't an isolated problem. It's affecting people. And often it's evident to people. Galatians 5.19 says the works of the flesh are evident. So a lot of times people see it. It's not a disorder. It's not a genetic issue. It's not something to be ignored. And it will always grow if you do not kill it. And it will weaken you. David's weakened condition of Psalm 38 after he was said, sinned with Bathsheba and was unrepentant. He said, I had no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There was no health in my bones because of my sin. First Corinthians 1130, you are weak and ill and some of you have died. People who nurse and harbor sin will weaken physically because they're always fighting against the anxieties of their unrepentant sin. That's hard work to fight against unrepentant sin, right? It's hard work. It's like going sleepless. It's like where you don't sleep and you're worried and worked up and fighting against what's in you instead of being released. Having holiness, I remember one time I went to confront, I was an associate pastor in Arkansas and I went to a sort of a, it was a very backwoods cabin thing and I went by myself and it was a kind of a quasi church discipline issue and I'll never do that again, go by yourself, you know, and I I went in there and so believing wife, unbelieving husband and the unbelieving husband was um, creating um, a faith that was based on fiction. And he was believing in, you know, science fiction things and aliens as being real and part of the gospel. And he had nanobots in his bloodstream and all kinds of stuff. And um, because of the, the, the bad influence of my wife, I was sort of up to speed on science fiction theory and fiction. <laughs> but this person had made fiction faith. And, and I started to confront this person as to whether he was really a believer at all. And, you know, he, and I, I like reformed theology, but he said, Listen, you know, he got really angry. He said, I am a five-point Calvinist. How can you doubt my salvation? And I was like, whoa, okay. You know, we're, we're in a, a bad place to be by myself at this point. He, he picked up a power tool, a, a Makita, and, and started to, you know, get kind of angry with it and stand up. And I'm standing up. And, and his wife, Georgia, was sitting on the couch and just smiling and saying, he's just worked up. He's just putting tools away to blow steam. And I'm like, whoa, okay, great. Cell phones were brand new at that point, but, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen. And his son came out the back, and that was a former um, convicted criminal. I I ended up leaving. It wasn't good. Judy (laughs) confronted me with our own household church discipline about me putting myself in that situation. But. But how do we think about our sin? We have to take full responsibility for it, not throw up smoke screens and shields. We're all susceptible to it, all of us. You have to face it. If you want to kill it, you have to look it down, look at it, locate it as the enemy within and take full responsibility for your sin. Let no one say when he is tempted, James 1.13, I'm being tempted by God. You can't blame it on God. 
For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. It's located within our hearts. Each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. It's the idea of once the process, the gestation process is taking place, conception to birth. Ultimately, what is born is a stillborn death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Verse 16. We cannot self-deceive ourselves. We have to be open. Your sin is not God's fault. It's our fault. Things were going from bad to worse as soon as sin entered into the world, all the way back to the days of Noah. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was on the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's just a phrase that really shows you how bad every intention of evil within the heart and it was going on continually. It's a, it's a factory of sin that is, that is happening within the heart and it got so out of control that God destroyed the world and guess what? It's happening again. We're right there in Genesis 3 in the New Testament church age with Romans 1. It's happening again. And this time the world will be destroyed with fire. James 4 says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Why do we fight with each other? Why are we at war with each other? Well, it's because of that person over there, right? No. James 4 says, is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You want something, you can't have it. That's all an internal deal. And so then you cast hatred at the person and you fight and you quarrel. Verse three, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Verse four, you adulterous people. It's covetousness, it's a idolatry it's adultery it's anger but it's all from within friendship with the world is enmity with god it puts you at odds with god therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of god and then verse five here's the hope or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us the holy spirit again wants to Rejoin with our spirit. Remember Romans 8, where we cry at Abba, Father, where we're, we have a clean conscience, where we've done business and we say, God, forgive me for that. I'm doing battle with that. I'm gonna flee those youthful lusts and passions and I'm gonna pursue you. And then you're regaining life and you're regaining the assurance of your salvation as a believer. That's what the Holy Spirit wants for your life. But it starts with calling it out for what it really is. So you declare a lifelong war against it, but you have to call it out first. No cataclysmic event is going to change it. It's, it's really being willing to be guilty of your sin. It's so non-politically correct to say, you know, I want the Holy Spirit to load me up with appropriate biblical guilt right now. Think about that. How does that play in our culture? I want to be responsible for what I've done. I did that. I'm thinking that way. It's me. It was said earlier, Luke 18, God be merciful to me, a sinner. That sinner wasn't even willing to look up and he was beating his chest. You know, thou art the man. David goes, okay. I get it. 
Luke 22 is the picture of Peter when he had denied Christ three times. Verse 61, the Lord looked at Peter. This is after he was scourged. He looks over at Peter before the cross, makes eye contact. Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. We have to look at the law in our hearts. It's not a cosmic killjoy to feel guilty. It's actually the path to deliverance. Past Puritan Richard Sibbs, he said, the conscience is the soul reflecting upon itself. And John Owen warns us not to plaster over our own wounds and sin. To be willing to pray a bold prayer. Will you pray this prayer? God, show me the sins beneath the sins. God, show me where I am being proud. Show me where I'm being obstinate. Show me where I'm unwilling to admit my pride. Show it to me. Would you pray a prayer like that? Because I've prayed prayers like that. And as soon as I pray prayers like that, there's the, oh, okay. All right, Lord, you're answering that prayer. Okay, I get it, I get it. Okay, all right, all right. It's a dangerous prayer to pray. All right, number two. Number one is being willing to face your sin and see it for what it really is. Number two, you have to be willing to fight. We talked about that a lot last week. But what I mean specifically is fight the specific sin, the specific sin. You have to starve it specifically. And this is how you do it. Colossians 3. If you've been raised with Christ, you're a Christian. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So you're, you're looking up. Set your minds on things above, not on the things of the earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. So you're going, look, I'm a Christian. I've died with Christ. I was buried. I rose again. I'm seeking heaven. You say, well, how is that helping me with real life sin temptation? Well, you got to stay up, but you also, as you're looking up, deal with what's down here. It says when Christ, who is our life, your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So you have all that hope. It's all going away. So what do you do with your sin now? So put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. What does that look like? You got to get your mind heavenward. But as you get heavenward, look at your specific sins, realizing a judgment's coming. You say, look, I know, God, you're coming home, so coming back to take me home, so I don't want to be found enslaved to this sin. Then look at verse 7 of Colossians 3. In these you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, seen talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Skip down verse 10 and have put on the new self, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of the creator. And then verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts and kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And it goes on from there. Verse 14 and above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And then verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell dwell in you richly. What is Paul saying here? He's saying you have to target the specific sin in light of the fact that you're a Christian, that it's as if you're seated already in the right hand of the Father. 
Your mind's, your mind's set on the things that are above. Christ is coming back. He's going to bring judgment and wrath on sin. I know all that. Now I have to take out the sin that's in my life, repent of it, call it out, tell people within the body of Christ and safe relationships, this is what I'm dealing with. But then you have to do something else. If you really want to kill a sin dead and starve it dead, you not only have to stop eating what's bad for you, you have to start eating what's good for you. Practically, physically speaking, this is where I always fall down in good health eating. I, I don't like to eat things that are green. I have to transition to that. I have to make a deliberate decision to eat healthy. But in the spiritual life, this is a non-negotiable If you want to take something out of your life and for it to stay out of your life and for it to be weakened, then you have to put good things into your life. You have to put church in your life. You say, yeah, I'm at church, but you can't just be at church. You have to be with people at church. You have to be known at church. You have to have relationships within church. You have to not just read the Bible. You have to really say, I want God to speak to me right now as I'm reading the Bible. You can't just pray superficially. You have to relate with God. You say, I've never killed my sin dead. I'm still enslaved to it. Well, perhaps you haven't put off and then genuinely by the Holy Spirit's inclination and power live the Christian life. You say, but that sounds way too simple. No, that is practical. Have you tried it? Have you tried having a genuine Christian friendship? A genu- have you tried to genuinely pray and read the word of God? This is what it looks like to kill pornography. This is what it looks like to not let sin reign. The culture is screaming at you. Just forget, just yield to it. Just give over to it. It's all normal now. Don't worry about it. Christianity and the Bible says to make no allowance for it, to put it out, to put it off, to starve it, to run from it like Joseph ran from Potiphar's wife, to flee youthful lusts and to grow. Romans six thirteen. do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. You have to say, I am that person. I am that person. Christian. The church is the outpost for your sanctification. You say, well, how do you know if you're growing? Let me tell you this. It's so similar to like trying to get healthy or or work through some health malady where there's something that you wonder if you're healing from it yet or not. Oftentimes in the Christian life, you don't know if you're growing. You don't. How do you know if you're growing? How do you know if the sin is weakened in your life? You don't. What often you do see is the fruit of righteousness, the joy of of actually knowing that you love the Lord, that you're recommitting and rededicating to God's word, that you're enjoying fellowship with believers. And as you are putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, and as you're enjoying relationships within the church, what's dying are the bad things in your life that you've repented of and tried to put away. If your focus is just putting away and putting off, but not clinging to the vine, then you'll never produce fruit. It's like trying to watch 
the ke- you know the kettle and wait for it to boil, or wait for the water to boil. It just never happens. It's bizarre, right? I mean, that is the truth, right? You stare at it, you stare at it, you want your coffee, but then you walk away from it and say, okay, I'm going to get on with life. And suddenly it's whistling and going off. That is how this works. We cling to Christ and then he brings the fruit and you look in the rearview mirror and go, you know what? I am growing and I can't believe it. But the Lord promises that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it to the day of the Lord Jesus Christ.